This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Tonight I'd like to continue with the seventh talk in the series on the Satipatthana Sutta based on the book by the Venerable Analayo called the Satipatthana Sutta, The Direct Path to Realization. So as you probably remember, the sutta opens with this declaration of the Buddha, bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four Satipatthanas. What are the four? Here, monks, in regard to the body, a monk or a bhikkhu, abides contemplating the body, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. So what are the four? Your monks, in regard to the body, a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body, In so many places in the suttas, not only in the Satipatthana Sutta, but in many other places, the Buddha speaks about the benefits of using the body as an object of contemplation, as an object of mindfulness. He spoke of mindfulness of the body as a source of joy, as a way of deepening concentration, He spoke of mindfulness of the body as the simplest and most direct way for overcoming the onslaughts of Mara, that is, the arisings of the hindrances or unwholesome mind states.
Bhikkhus, when anyone has not developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body, Mara finds an opportunity and a support in him or her. When anyone has developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body, Mara cannot find an opportunity and support. Then he went on to use different examples. He likened lack of mindfulness of the body to be similar to a mound of wet clay and a heavy stone falling into the wet clay and it falls right into right into the clay, making an indentation. When there is mindfulness of the body, Buddha said it's like throwing a ball of string against a hardwood door. It doesn't have hardly any impact at all. When there's not mindfulness of the body, it's like pouring water into an empty jug. Mara just enters. When there is mindfulness of the body, it's like the jug of water that's already full. We can't add any more in. He also spoke of mindfulness of the body as being the basis for every kind of accomplishment leading onward to Nibbana, to awakening. Bhikkhus, when anyone has developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body, then when he inclines his mind towards realizing any state that may be realized by direct knowledge, he attains the ability to witness any aspect therein, there being a suitable basis. Bhikkhus, when mindfulness of the body has been repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle, used as a basis, established, consolidated, and well undertaken, these ten benefits may be expected. What ten? One becomes a conqueror of discontent. One becomes a conqueror of fear and dread. One bears heat and cold, hunger and thirst, and contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, the sun, and creeping things. One endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words and arisen bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, and piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. This is quite a list of benefits. One obtains at will, without trouble or difficulty, the four jhanas that provide a pleasant abiding here and now. One wields various kinds of supernormal power. And by realizing for oneself with direct knowledge, one here and now enters upon and abides in the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints. Bhikkhus, when mindfulness of the body has been repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle, used as a basis, established, consolidated, and well undertaken, these ten benefits may be expected. Sometimes... I think in the midst of our practice, it seems like we're doing such an ordinary thing, just paying attention to the body in the various ways we do. 
And yet the Buddha is pointing out that the practice of this, the cultivation of it, the establishment of the mind in it, making mindfulness of the body the default setting for our minds, where that's where we abide more usually, there is tremendous power in this. After the Buddha's death, Ananda remarked that mindfulness of the body can truly be considered one's best friend. Very often in my practice, it has felt like that. You know, in the midst of kind of the endless proliferating thoughts, or in the midst of big emotional storms, or in the midst of the energetic ups and downs of our practice, we can always and easily come back to just this breath, or just this step. So many times in my practice, I've been thankful that it has been this simple. It's not complicated. It's just the practice of doing it. It's the practice of remembering to do it. It's just coming back to the simplest aspect of what's already here. It's not something we need to go looking for, not something we need to go searching for. So the Buddha didn't just end in the sutta with his recommendation, mindfulness of the body, you know, and his extolling the benefits. He further clarifies the practice by asking a question, which is a prelude in the sutta to his answering it. He said, and how, bhikkhus, does one in regard to the body abide contemplating the body? So he's, he's setting up the foundation for the whole description of the practice. How do we actually do this? He then tells us, here, having gone to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, he sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, crosswise, setting his body erect, and established mindfulness in front of him, mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. So in just these few lines in the sutta, the Buddha is giving us a fair amount of guidance about how to practice. First he's saying where we should practice. Go to the forest, to the roots of a tree, to an empty hut. And all of these suggest the importance and the appropriate degree of seclusion. When I first went to India looking for a teacher and ending up in Bodh Gaya and meeting Manindraji and starting my practice, I was staying at the Burmese Vihara in Bodh Gaya which was a place built for Buddhist pilgrims from Burma, but at that time Burma was closed. People couldn't travel in or out. And so it became the place of choice for Western Dharma farers. 
And at that time, there were very few. There were only like four or five Westerners in Bodh Gaya at that time. So I went and I connected with Manindraji and started the practice. Well, the Burmese Vihara, in terms of appropriateness of seclusion, was completely inappropriate. It was right next to a busy road. It was right outside the village. It was directly across the road from a public water tap where the village women would gather during the day, you know, and be bathing and pounding clothes. And So even still, even with all this noise, I was so grateful to have a place to practice. But it took what seemed like an immeasurably long time for the mind to actually get concentrated, to settle down, because it was not the most suitable place. Here at the Forest Refuge, it's like everything the Buddha is suggesting in terms of suitability of seclusion, this place is eminently suitable. And I think you and almost everybody who's been here feels it immediately as you walk in, just the immediate settling, the quiet. So this is, a, this is a direct teaching of the Buddha. This is an appropriate place to practice. So just in reflecting on that, I think it is worth appreciating the blessing of it because it's rare in the world. Next, the Buddha talks about the sitting posture. No, we come to a secluded place. And this is a little more than an empty hut, but it's basically an empty hut. <laughs> so then, having folded his legs, sets his body erect. So this is talking to the question of posture. Now, of course, we know that in many Asian countries, people grow up sitting cross-legged. So crossing one's leg is, legs are not a big deal for most Asians. It's, it's how they sit. Westerners, it's quite a different matter. So I think there's some room here for a little cultural adjustment with regard to sitting posture. And as we know, sitting on a bench, sitting in a chair, all of this seems totally appropriate. When I first began my practice in Bodh Gaya, it was sitting cross-legged was just impossible for me. It was so painful. I couldn't sit five minutes. And so I was sitting in a chair. But I'm very tall, and most chairs were not that uh, suitable for me. So I put this one big wicker chair up on some bricks, and then I put cushions on top of the chair, and then I hung my mosquito net over this whole edifice that I had created. It was like perching on a throne or a shoeshine box or something. It was a little embarrassing when Munindraji would come in and kind of see me perched. (laughs) But it worked. (laughs) You know, it was like, Okay, this is what I needed, uh, at least to start with. So we find a suitable posture, and however we're sitting, I think it is helpful to keep the body erect, the back erect, without being stiff or tense. 
Different Buddhist traditions, of course, give different emphases to this question of posture. You know, in Zen practice, as you might know, there's a lot of emphasis. The, the posture, the correct posture, is a foundation of the practice. You know, and it gives, as we know, sitting in that way can give a tremendous strength uh, and power to our meditation. It's like the form, the form of a erect, straight sitting posture becomes both the container and the expression of awakening, of the wakeful mind. In the Theravada tradition or in the Tibetan tradition, there's somewhat less emphasis on holding a precise or an exact posture, although still suggesting sitting with the back straight. But what happens here is, and you've probably experienced this in your practice, when the energy and the concentration build, then the back and the whole body straightens from within. It's as if the energy from within is straightening the body, straightening the back. And so there's a trust in that process. For our own practice, how do we follow these Buddha's guidance? I think it's helpful to find the balance between these two approaches. When we're sleepy, when we're distracted, when the mind feels enervated or in a weakened state, then sitting Zen-like could be very helpful. Where we really sit up straight, we take a very exact posture. That becomes our object of attention, and it really raises energy. You know, there's a kind of meditative understanding that effort creates energy. It's not so much that we need energy to make effort. The very making of the effort is what builds the energy in the system. You know, and we know this, for example, not so much here, but in, a, in our life in the world, if you're feeling very tired, you know, and you go out and do some vigorous exercise, the very effort to do it actually creates more energy in the system. Well, here we're using that principle in a more refined way. Effort creates energy. The effort to sit straight actually makes us more wakeful. But if it feels like there's too much striving, over-efforting, then it might be helpful to actually relax the posture a bit and allowing the energy to flow from within. And I had a very striking example of this in my practice in Burma. It was at the Mahasi Yekta, the monastery in Rangoon. I'd been there a couple of months my practice had gotten to a place where it just felt stuck. I, I was going over the same ground again and again and again. Each day, Saito Pandita was kind of waiting for me to come in and report something different. But it was just the same thing that was happening. At one point, I think, by way of encouragement, he gave me this example. He said, it's like, it's not a very Buddhist example, but it's what he said. It's like a hunter going out into the forest you know, looking to, to 
catch an animal. And he goes day after day, and he can never catch the animal, but at least he's learning the ways of the forest. So that's what he told me by way of my uh, practice. You may not be catching anything, but you're learning this particular stretch of ground by going over it repeatedly. But then the sun, I just had the idea, I had been sitting cross-legged all the time. And I thought, well, I'm going to just start alternating, sitting cross-legged and then sitting in a chair, sitting cross-legged, sitting in a chair. And it was amazing, just that little bit of relaxing a certain kind of efforting or striving that I didn't even realize I was doing. But just by relaxing the body into a somewhat more comfortable posture, it opened everything up. It actually allowed everything uh, to continue to unfold. So I saw the value of that side as well. Sometimes we make more effort. Sometimes we relax the effort a bit. So we go to a secluded spot, sit one way or another with the back erect. And then the next phrase the Buddha uses in the sutta says, to establish mindfulness in front of him. Now this phrase, establishing mindfulness in front, is a kind of ambiguous phrase. What does that mean? And it's been interpreted in several different ways. We go to a secluded spot, assume our posture, establish mindfulness in front. In one way of understanding it, it means establishing the attention, focusing the attention, just at the tip of the nose, either the nostrils or the upper lips, So it's actually establishing the focus of attention in that place. And an image that's used is like a gatekeeper in an ancient city, you know, that's just watching people come and go, but not actually following them in and out of the city, just staying at the gate. So this is one meaning of establishing mindfulness in front. We establish our attention right at the gate of the nostrils. And we just attend or are mindful of the breath going in, the breath going out. Different teachers also suggest different ways for establishing this mindfulness in front, different places to focus the attention. And two of the great Thai forest masters, Ajahn Mahabua and Ajahn Dharo, They instruct their students to begin with their attention at the tip of the nostrils, but then as things develop to actually focus on the the chest or the solar plexus as the place, the place of attention. So that's their way of establishing mindfulness in front. And of course, in the Mahasi tradition, a lot of emphasis is given to the rise and fall of the abdomen. So we hear all these different interpretations or instructions. I've always appreciated a lot the pragmatism of Munindraji, who he was very well practiced. After he had practiced with Mahasi Sayadaw, 
he went and over, studied over 50 different ways of doing Vipassana. You know, and he did this uh, very, thorough, very thorough study of all the texts, the Abhidharma. So he had a very broad understanding. And I appreciated that from the very beginning because he was not very dogmatic about how it has to be this way, it has to be that way, because he saw various approaches. So his, his way of understanding this was pay attention, establish mindfulness in front at that place where it's most distinct, where we feel it most easily, most clearly. So whether it's the nose, whether it's the chest, whether it's the abdomen, wherever we feel it most clearly, that's where we place our attention. But there's another whole interpretation of this phrase. It's not so much about where we place our attention, but sitting down and establishing a meditative composure, a quality of attentiveness. It's setting up from the beginning a certain presence of mind surrounding oneself with a, with a kind of watchfulness of mind. And this very same section of the sutta in the Chinese version kind of translates somewhat different. It says, with thoughts well controlled, not going astray. So that's another meaning of sitting down, establishing mindfulness in front. The Buddha is emphasizing here the importance, after we've established our posture, of making the conscious intention to be mindful. It's the reminder to ourselves, right as we take our seat, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is my purpose. It's that moment's reaffirmation of what we're doing here, rather than simply settling into our posture and then, in a more lackadaisical way, drifting into thought, drifting into reverie. The Buddha is saying, sit down, body erect, establish mindfulness in front. Remember the purpose of the sitting. Because that very first or very first moments of intention can actually condition the whole direction of the sitting. It's a powerful moment to pay attention to. In one other sutta, the same phrase is used to describe the Buddha's own way of taking his meditative seat with the motivation of bodhicitta. It describes how he, the Buddha, sits himself cross-legged, sets his body erect, and establishes mindfulness in front of him. He does not occupy his mind with self-affliction or the affliction of others or the affliction of both. He sits with his mind set on his own welfare, on the welfare of others, and on the welfare of both. 
even on the welfare of the whole world. So as we apply these words of the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta in our own practice, we can include all of these aspects, all of these meanings. Setting mindfulness in front, it means the specific place we direct our attention. It means the basic setting of our intention to be mindful. And it includes the wish for our practice to benefit all beings. So all of that is included in this one short phrase. So we found a suitable place to practice. We've assumed an appropriate posture. We've established mindfulness in front of us. In the sutta, the Buddha then gives a series of progressive instructions regarding the breath as the first of the body contemplations. And he starts out in the most simple way. Having established mindfulness in front, mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. So here, as in so many other places in the suttas, the Buddha is pointing to sort of the invaluable but often overlooked power of our own breathing. Now this humble breath, which we mostly in our ordinary lives ignore, is such a good and powerful object of meditation because it is always present. And it's a suitable object for all personality types. You know, you're familiar with the, the Buddhist personality types, the greedy type, angry, aversive, and deluded type. And each one has specific meditations which are particularly appropriate you know, as antidotes to those tendencies. But the breath is universally applicable. It leads both to deepening concentration and it leads to penetrative insight. And mindfulness of the breath also is a stabilizing factor at the time of death. That even our last breath could be a mindful one if we're well practiced in it. And that would be a tremendous gift. So as a little practice towards that end, just at night as you're going to sleep, you know, just watching your breath, whether it's in, out, or rise and fall, in, out, in, out, in, out, and then see if you go to sleep on an in-breath or an out-breath. It's like, it's almost like that moment of death, not quite, but can we pay attention to that degree? So we start with this very simple awareness. I know I'm breathing in, I know I'm breathing out. Then the Buddha goes on 
he further refines the instruction. The sutta says, breathing in long, he knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, he knows I breathe out short. Now the idea, as you know, in this practice is not to control the breath. It's not to make it long specifically, it's not to make it short specifically, but it's simply to notice how it is. As with all these instructions, different teachers have different approaches to this, even in something as simple as being mindful of the breath. So Saida Upandita has a very specific approach. You know, he uses language like rushing toward the object, capturing the object, forcefully penetrating the object. So it's very active. It's really the mind going very forcefully to the breath. Other teachers emphasize the more receptive mode, receiving the breath as it arises, simply being aware of each breath as it presents itself. If it's long, know it's long. If it's short, know it's short. Now usually people hear these different instructions and have a point of view, have an opinion. One is right, the other is right, and get into either external or internal conflict. I think it's much more helpful as we hear these different approaches to see them all as skillful means. Each one is a skillful means for developing mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. If the mind is over-efforting, if it's tight, we need to soften. If it is wandering a lot, you know, we're very sleepy, then rushing to the object and penetrating it Being with the object with a sense of vigor could be very helpful. Somebody once complained to Ajahn Chah about the conflicting instructions he would give to people. And sometimes he said one thing, and another time he'd say just the opposite. And Ajahn Chah just smiled, and he said, it's like this, it's somebody going, walking down a road, and you see them falling into a ditch on the right. So you shout up ahead, go left, go left. A little further along, they're falling off on a ditch to the left. You, you shout down, go right, go right. The instructions are opposite, and yet they're all skillful means for finding the middle path. So we need to see in some way, and especially in a situation like this, you know, where there's so much independence in your practice, you need to be assessing yourself. Okay, what's the right approach here? in being mindful of the short breath, mindful of the long breath? Do we need to be more receptive? Do we need to be more active? This is what we're learning. At times, the breath can get very refined. You know, and sometimes it's imperceptible. We don't feel the breath at all. At those times, we don't want to be intentionally making the breath stronger in order to be able to be mindful of it. 
which yogis sometimes do. Rather, it's using the increasing refinement of the breath to draw the mind down to that level of subtlety. You know, it's like listening to the progressively fainter sounds of a bell. mind can get so refined as it's drawn down to that level of subtlety. So the refinement of the breath, which can happen in the practice, then becomes the vehicle for the refinement of the mind. So having gone to the forest, to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, one sits down, holding one's leg crosswise, setting the body erect, establishing mindfulness in front. Mindful, one breathes in, mindful, one breathes out. Breathing in long, he knows, breathe in long, breathing out long, knows he breathes out long. Likewise with short breath. Now at this point in the sutta, there's a very interesting change of language. In the first, in these first two exercises, the Buddha uses the verb to know. Breathing in long, we know we're breathing in long. Breathing in short, we know we're breathing in short. In the next two exercises, the verb changes. It's no longer to know, but to train. So the sutta goes on here, it says, he trains thus. I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, calming the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, calming the bodily formation. This shift of language, and presumably the Buddha used language carefully. It's not like kind of just an accidental uh, change of verbs. This shift from knowing to training introduces into our practice an increased level of intentionality. As we broaden our awareness from just the breath by itself to experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. But here too, there are different interpretations of what this means. This is what's so beautiful about going through the sutta in this way, because it's like we can begin to absorb 2,500 years of interpretation, you know, and Again, instead of getting attached to view, it becomes a way of appreciating the richness of 2,500 years of people's practice, you know, and how all of this has been applied. 
Uh, so there's a lot to learn, you know, from these nuances of language. So what does it mean to say to experience the whole body? In its most literal meaning, it means breathing in and feeling the whole physical body, feeling the body posture. But the commentaries kind of have a different interpretation. They say that this refers to experiencing the whole breath body. That it doesn't mean the whole physical body, but just the body of the breath. Meaning that we train ourselves to experience the beginning, the middle, and the end of each breath. So here we go from simply knowing whether it's a long or short breath, to feeling the breath more intimately, where we experience the entire flow of changing sensations with each in and out breath. So as before, these two different interpretations, whether it's the whole body means the whole physical body or the breath body, this is just offering us different skillful means to apply at appropriate times. If we're too controlling with the breath, if we're too interfering, if we're not relaxed with it, instead of zeroing in on it, being aware of it in the context, in the larger context of the whole body would be really helpful. Now, where we're sitting, we're feeling the whole sitting posture, we're feeling the whole physical body, and the in and out breath is simply a part of that bigger field of mindfulness. But if we're too spaced out, you know, if the mind is just getting lost or wandering or not very precise, then narrowing the focus to just the very microscopic stream of sensations of the in and out or the rising and falling would be a very helpful thing to do. So in the last instruction in the sequence of training ourselves to breathe in, it says, breathe in, calming the bodily formation. He trains, I shall breathe out, calming the bodily formation. So we can do this in two ways as well. If we're taking the whole body to mean the physical body, Calming the bodily formations means keeping the body still. Means keeping the posture steady. Means calming any inclination to move. And here the use of what we've called vow hours or vow half hours, or vow 15 minutes, can be really helpful. Calming the bodily formation. You know, Goenkaji used to, in his courses, a few sittings a day would be these vow hours where you take the vow not to move. It's a very powerful exercise. Let me die. I'm going to just sit here. We've gotten... Maybe each generation gets a little softer, so we don't necessarily say a vow hour, but take some period of time. 
you know, where you undertake this training of calming the bodily formation. When we understand calming the body to mean the breath body, this suggests holding the attention to calm the breathing itself. So this is an interesting place of practice where you breathe in with the intention to calm the breath as you breathe in, to calm, the, to let the breath calm the body. When you breathe out, hold the intention to breathe out, calming the breath. So this is a little more active engagement in the practice. Now this particular, this particular instruction in the sutta of calming the breath, calming the body, is the basis for both samatha practice, jhana practice, and insight. In jhana practice, in samatha practice, the emphasis is on just mentally knowing the presence of the breath. You know, in gaining stability on some sign of concentration that arises. So using the breath as a samatha practice, we're not going to the specific sensations, but we're just resting in the simple knowing of the presence of the breath, and as the concentration deepens, it can either be some mental sign, could be a a light or a shape or a form or a color, and the mind gains stability on that. It could be some sign of feeling in the whole body that arises. When we use the breath in Vipassana, when we're mindful of it in Vipassana, it's a different, it's a different approach. Because there the emphasis is on precisely seeing the changing nature of the sensations. In the realm of Vipassana, we want to see the variety of what's happening and the nature of changing experience. So this is the point in the practice where it can go one in one of these two directions. What's surprising in our lives is how often we overlook the breath. Now, even though each breath is actually sustaining our lives, and isn't it odd that we would find the breath boring? This phenomena that moment after moment is literally keeping us alive. And so when we're feeling bored by the breath, I think it's a certain lack of gratitude you know, and a lack of close attention that is somehow tuning in to the power of this process. You know, the breath is said to have been the basis for the Buddha's own awakening, this mindfulness of breathing. And it can also be the basis for our own. I'd just like to read a couple of things in closing of 
how the Buddha spoke of this practice of mindfulness of breathing. If anyone, bhikkhus, speaking rightly, could say of anything, it is a noble dwelling, a divine dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling. It is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing that one could rightly say this. Can we sit with that appreciation? This is not an insignificant process that's happening. It is a noble dwelling, a divine dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling. This concentration by mindfulness of breathing. And he goes on to say, bhikkhus, those bhikkhus who are trainees, who have not attained their mind's ideal, who dwell aspiring for the unsurpassed security from bondage, that's us, For them, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, leads to the destruction of the taints. Those bhikkhus who are arhans, probably not us, whose taints are destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached their own goal, utterly destroyed the fetters of existence, those completely liberated through final knowledge. For them, concentration by mindfulness of breathing when developed and cultivated leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension and to a pleasant dwelling in this very life. So it's really the Buddha's statement about the power both for those of us aspiring to liberation and for those who are already liberated. reminding us of the power of this practice, the power of the simplicity of it. Bhikkhus, if wanderers of other sects ask you, in what dwelling friends did the Blessed One generally dwell during the rain's residence? Being asked thus, you should answer those wanderers thus. During the rain's residence, friends, the Blessed One generally dwelt in the concentration by mindfulness of breathing. So let's sit for a few minutes, kind of remembering this part of the sutta. Having gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, one sits down. Having folded one's legs crosswise or otherwise, set his body erect and establishing mindfulness in front. Mindful one breathes in, mindful one breathes out. Breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, one knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one knows I breathe out short. One trains thus. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. One trains thus. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. 
One trains thus, I shall breathe in calming the bodily formations. One trains thus, I shall breathe out calming the bodily formations. One of the benefits of going through the sutta in this way is that taking in the very basic instructions, especially for people who are well-practiced, I found it's a way of illuminating kind of old yogi habit patterns of mind. It's like, okay, let's start from the beginning. And especially when we look at the Buddha's words directly and just apply them directly, it can shake loose maybe sometimes old habit patterns that we've established in our practice that we don't even know we've established. You know, when, when Upandita first came in 1984, of course I had been practicing a long time and teaching quite a while, and he made some comment about that in the, in the first interview. And I said very genuinely, I want to start just from the beginning, because I wanted to begin again, freshly, in my practice. So I think that's the usefulness of, of hearing the sutta in this way. So I hope it's useful for you as well. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insighthour.